Welcome to the Talking Code Podcast. I'm Josh Smith. And I'm Venkat Dinavahi. And we're having short interviews with experts that help you decode what developers are saying. If you're a first-time listener, make sure to go to TalkingCode.com and sign up for our mailing list. We send out links to new interviews along with exclusive content just for our subscribers. Today, we're talking with Jordan Gall of Carthook about how he found a technical co-founder in Ben Fisher, despite the fact that Jordan lives in Portland and Ben lives in New York. And look out for a separate interview where we get Ben's take on all this. How are you doing, Jordan? I'm doing very well. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, we're glad to have you. So it's, uh, I think it's kind of crazy how uh, your CTO, Ben, is, is friends with me and we work on the same floor. You got introduced to me by uh, Brian Castle, right? Um, how do you know him? Do you guys, you're on the same podcast together? Yeah, it's actually part of the same absurd coincidental circle here. Brian is in my mastermind group that I've been a part of for about a year and a half. Further coincidence, he he lives in like the town next door to where I used to live and we didn't even know that when when we first got set up on the the mastermind group. And then I joined him on his podcast and now we co-host the Bootstrap Web podcast together. And I don't even know what what the coincidence was, but I got introduced to you by Brian Castle. At the same moment that Ben, who is now my co-founder, sent me a message with your name on it talking about, hey, we should talk to Venkat about hiring you know, developers or something or other. So it's just, like, just kind of this a weird, absurd, coincidental circle, but it's kind of great to all uh, you know, bring it all together. Yeah, that's awesome. Especially, I, I'm a listener of uh, your podcast too, so it's just awesome. kind of funny to like find out after the fact. You know, once Venkat had already said, "Hey, we've got you know a really great guest lined up," and I'm like, "Oh my gosh, he's also." <laughs> I, I don't know. It's just it's this weird like world where everybody seems to be super interconnected somehow. Small, small world. Agreed. I think I have the least context of anybody here. So, could you tell me a little bit about how Carthook got started? Sure. So it goes back to my experience in the e-commerce world. Uh, I started an e-commerce business with my two brothers several years ago and built that up. Uh, it was kind of a crazy joyride of not knowing a thing about e-commerce at all to kind of figuring a few things out. And then the company just started growing. We got to like 65K a month in revenue and did like 500K the first 12 months and then sold it. So it's kind of like whirlwind. And what I like to say is it wasn't this life-changing exit, but it was career-changing in that the experience of going from zero to growth to selling a company was an amazing kind of experience to kind of set the foundation for what you know what, what I want to do in my career in general. So after we sold the e-commerce business, I looked back at the tools that we used. One of the lessons I learned from e-commerce was that I'd really prefer to be in the recurring re- revenue business and ideally in the not shipping real goods through UPS business, dealing with the customer service and the returns and shipping. And it was a giant headache. Right. Um, so I, I want to get into the software business. So what I did was I looked back at the tools that we used as e-commerce merchants and I identified a few that I wanted to essentially copy and make better versions of. And the one I settled on was card abandonment. We used the product. It was terrible. It was just a terrible product. And it still made us like two, $3,000 a month. We paid 50 bucks a month for it. So every month we'd do the numbers and we'd say, well, we're never going to cancel that right there. And uh, I kind of wanted to be that guy. <laughs> so, <laughs> so that's, that's kind of where it all ended up. And I think what, you know, what's very relevant to our conversation today is that I don't do any code. I don't develop. I don't know what the hell I'm talking about for the most part. 
So I have these ideas and I can't do them myself. And that's, you know, puts you in this strange position. So, uh, what happened initially for the first product? How did you find your, your CTO, Ben, of course? Well, Ben is the co-founder and current CTO, but Ben is not the person who originally built the product. That is our third co-founder, Charlie, who is a incredibly talented designer, developer, did everything from the marketing site to the dashboard to the databases to the JavaScript tracker to everything. And him I found by more coincidence. I started roaming about the world with my uh, wife and daughter two years ago. And we just kind of traveled and did like a month or two in each city. We went to like eight different cities and all over the place in Europe. And one of our stops was in San Francisco. And by coincidence, I bump into a family friend at the laundromat in Noe Hill. <laughs> and it's, it's this guy, this Charlie, who I knew about. I knew he was like the wonderkind, you know, super developer, younger brother of, 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 of a family friend. Uh, and we just kind of bumped into each other. Coincidentally, we started going to coffee, started talking business. And I expressed to him my desire to partner with someone uh, on the development side because I have these ideas. And he was convinced that it was a real opportunity and he wanted more business experience to go beyond just his uh, technical experience. And that's how we kind of got married originally, built the product and launched. And Ben is now entering the picture about about a year later. Okay. So if, so, if you back up a second for me, I, I think what I'm trying to figure out is – when you met him, you were already looking for somebody or was it active or passive at this point? No, it was active in that I was talking to development shops. I was talking to you know freelancers. I wanted to get this thing built. Now, my preference would have been to have it built internally with a partner as opposed to, you know, I got quotes for 10 grand, 15 grand to have the product built. I just wanted to sell. I mean, the technology is always interesting to me, but selling is much more interesting. And I just wanted to have something that I could sell that had recurring revenue built in. And I kind of didn't really, not that I didn't care what it was. I just wanted to pick the best possible thing. But I knew that I should prefer to have it built internally by someone who's an interested party and a partner as opposed to just paying for a development firm. And so I was actively looking and explaining this stuff to Charlie and basically showing him the opportunity. And that's how he, he jumped on board. What stage was Carthook at at this point? It was at an idea level, but it's not just an idea of, hey, this might work. It was, hey, I use the product just like this. This is the product that I use. This is this competitor. These are the other six competitors that I have already been in touch with and told them that I wanted to be a salesman for their product. So they've given me all the information about their product. So I know everything about the market. So we're, we're going to launch this with minimal uh, like product risk. Like There was very little risk of building something that had no market and no ability to sell. Okay. And so at this, did you define the product at this point or it was more of a pitching? No, no, no. no. Okay. I, I defined it. I said, this is what it needs to do. It needs to capture the email address during the checkout process on an e-commerce store. And if the person completes the checkout, then we don't do anything. But if they put their email address in and they don't complete the checkout within 60 minutes, let's consider it abandoned. And if that happens, trigger an automated three-part email campaign. And that's it. And then once the person comes back, we count that as recovered revenue and we stop the email campaign from continuing on. So that, I thought, <laughs> wasn't that complicated. It turns out that that's actually very complicated. <laughs> 
So I'm, of course, you know, as a consultant hearing you talk about like wanting to build this in-house and going to all these consultancies. And of course, you know, alarm bells are going off in my head at this point saying, oh, oh, oh God, I'm, I'm losing this guy's business. So <laughs> I'd like to dig into what convinced you that you needed to work with somebody in-house. Because I had the feeling that this was going to be more complicated than it sounds and that, sure, someone can build me an MVP type product for 10,000 bucks. But then every single time I want a new feature, I need changes. This, they're having an issue. Something, this is going wrong or that's going wrong. It's just going to bleed me dry, you know, and I just thought that was not a healthy place to be. Right. It should be much more collaborative than that. Like, okay, here I talk to this customer. They are ready to sign on, but they need this thing. And then that person would be interested in saying, okay, I'm going to build that tonight because you have a real customer. Like, let's do it. That's the type of interest I wanted someone to have in the product as opposed to, okay, I have other clients that are worth more to me and I'll get to you next week and I'll charge you eight hours for it. And, you know, I just paid 800 to $1,600 in development time to bring on one customer because they said they wanted a different type of feature. So I just, I just knew it was going to be a lot healthier uh, for a long-term success than working with, with someone that's not internal. It's not part of the company. So what was it about the conversations that you had with him as being an, an internal hire that made you comfortable with the idea that this was going to be the case? I, th I think from my perspective, you know, I always, I, I hear the two competing sides of the story where there are people who are very salary driven. I'm happy to go there nine to five and take home whatever the pay is and, you know, maybe work a little bit more slowly and not care so much about the performance. <laughs> I mean, I've seen that just at companies that I've worked at, you know, as yeah, like head of product. That's the, or, right. That's the norm. Right. So what was it about him in particular that led you to believe that this was not the norm? You know, there's luck involved. You know, there's a lot of hoping for the best because you, you don't really know because what people say, myself included, up front on a commitment uh, is not is not always what's going to end up working out and how committed people are going to be. So we hit it off on a personal level in terms of trust and, you know, just gut feeling for the other person who kind of lined up in how we think and our demeanor and all that. And beyond that, the situation was right. So he wanted to quote, invest in something by using his skill and time and having it pay off over time. So he was a freelancer. He was doing pretty well. He's very employable. Right now, he works for an amazing company in San Francisco. And he knew he could do that whenever he wanted. So he figured, you know what? I'm going to put in a few months. I'm going to learn a lot. I'm going to put in a lot of work, and that's going to pay off over time exponentially. So he wanted to do that, which lines up with what I was trying to do. And then at the same time, we kind of had very complementary skills. I came across as the business guy, the sales guy that I, I know how to reach out to people and ask them for money. And he didn't have that skill. And I needed him because I, I couldn't build what I wanted to sell and he could. So it's kind of this, uh, it's the right situation. So let me understand then, you had kind of this expectation of working together for a few months or I mean, what was the relationship outlined to look like at that point? The relationship was that he would get a percentage of the business in exchange for building and he would do a lot of the work up front and getting it to a place where it works. And then it would be my job to sell and grow and he would maintain and add stuff as necessary 
And then once the company got to a point where, you know, it required more, then, you know, he, he would kind of have the option if he wanted to join full time or if, uh, if we wanted to hire someone else or if we were going to raise money or hire a CTO. And, you know, so that, that, that was kind of the expectation was we don't really know what's going to happen in the future, but the outline is I do a lot of work up front, then you go sell. So like would switch. So he, he was doing 80% of the work while I did 20. And then once it was live, it switched over to I was doing 80% he was doing 20. Okay. So I, I think what I'm hearing then is that he really was taking on a lot of risk then at this stage. I mean, yes. obviously, of course, you know, you feel as though it were de-risked, but really he was going into it, not like a consultant saying, I've got you know, I know at the end of this project, regardless of whether or not the project succeeds, I'm going to make money. He really was tied to the success of the project itself. Oh, yes. Hundreds of hours without getting paid over the course of, you know, three, four months before things launched, before there was revenue. Right. And so it was my duty, my responsibility to not only convey how we were going to minimize risk at the beginning, but that also along the way, that he would be motivated by what he saw happening on the outside. So while he was building, I was not sitting around saying, when are you going to be done? I was gathering intel. I was talking to potential customers. I was reaching out to people and selling them on the product that didn't exist yet. And I would convey all these things that were happening. So he knew, hey, this guy's not just having me build something and then saying, oh, you know what? I don't really want to go forward with it. So it was, it was a lot of trust. And we got lucky that I mean, it, it worked out. He's just a great, honest guy and very talented. And I held up my end of the bargain, as did he. And it, it could have gone the other way, <laughs> but, but it, it's, going, it's going really well. Well, I'm going to take a second and break journalistic integrity here and go into right. like concerned parent mode because I, I like, <laughs> I, you know, I'm, I guarantee you I have some listeners out there and I apologize to anybody who feels offended by this, but who, you know, is hearing what you're saying and, uh, is nodding their head and saying, yes, I've de-risked everything. And, you know, I know that my product is amazing and I should be able to go out and find a founder who, you know, is working for 5% equity, you know, whatever it is that I'm doing. I don't think that's what you're saying here. So if you'd allow me to rephrase what it is that you said, and you can tell me if I'm right or not, I think what you did, and you used the term responsibility, I think, which mm -hmm. is key. So you said that you were responsible for making sure that this risk was no longer present. And so your job really was not to just be the idea person. Um, no. Your job was not to be the person who says, you know, I have this brilliant thing. Don't really know how it's going to work. You're going to build it and then we'll see what happens. It was to make sure that before any technical work was done, you knew within, you know, a reasonable doubt that you had an educated guess at the very least that this thing that you were building was going to end up turning out to be successful in some measure. Is that right? Yes. So th there are two things there. The first thing is that you're right. That being the guy with the idea, if you think that that's enough and oh, I just need to find a developer because my idea is so awesome and I'm going to have them sign an NDA because it's so amazing of an idea that I, I have to be careful with it, like that, that is not going to work out. It's very unlikely to work out for you. What you want to do, and I feel a little hesitant in like trying to give advice. So what I can say is what I did was I did the work. I did the research. I had all the information on different offerings, different features, different competitors, their pricing. I had spoken to the owners and founders of those competitors. I had reached out to 
my e-commerce connections from back when I was in e-commerce and ask them, are they using something like this? Would they use it? You know, I had, I brought as much to the table as possible that, you know, that, that was real. It wasn't just an idea. It wasn't on paper. It wasn't, this is going to be so amazing. We're going to be billionaires. It was real. It was, I've spoken to these people. This is their pricing. This is why. This is the intel that I've gathered from what they told me and why their pricing is the way it is. This is what I used to use. This is how it's good. This is how it's bad. Here are posts in e-commerce forums of people saying that they want a product like this and they know that this exists, but it doesn't quite do what they want. And that's the type of feature that I'm talking about. So I, it went a lot further than, than idea. And now the second part is that luck is luck and no one cares. You know, if you, if you come from a rich family and you have a lot of resources and to start a company from a different place from other people, like, cool. It's too bad if you don't have that, <laughs> you know? This guy's a family friend I ran into in the laundromat. Like you might listen to this and say, oh, you got lucky. Who cares? Sorry. You know, if I got lucky in that respect, I got unlucky in other respects. Uh, so there is an element to it of, I don't know, don't be naive. Don't think that you're going to be the idea guy and that's all. And at the same time, like go make your own luck. You know, that's it. <laughs> Nobody cares. The market does not care how nice of a person you are. The market only cares about, you know, what kind of value you can provide. So deal with it. So what do you think matters to a CTO being approached by a non-technical person? What is it that they want to hear? Right. If we talk specifically about Ben, because I'm hesitant to give advice. I'm hesitant to take what my experience is and apply it to this is what everyone should do. I don't quite have the gall for that. So what I can talk about is if you look at someone like Ben, who is a high quality, high caliber CTO, product designer, product developer, the only way that I had the chance of scoring someone that came to come on board is because I had something real. So when we talked to Ben, we had real customers, we had revenue, we had a pipeline full of other customers. I had done a bunch of interviews. I was on Mixergy. I was legit. So the opportunity looked legit. And then when we talked, connected and hit it off, someone in Ben's point of view, a CTO looks at it and says, this is real. This isn't just like child's play. This isn't me coming in too late and the company's already built out and there are already 30 employees and I'm going to get 0.002% and I'm going to make, you know, a small bit of difference. It's not so early on that this guy is just like wildly talking about different ideas and going in different directions, that this is a real opportunity. It's something in the early stages. It has some traction. And if I come in here, not only can I get a big piece of the action, but I can make a huge amount of difference. So I think that's, that's what was, you know, very, very appealing. And then secondly, I did not really mess around. You know, I, I met Ben on the phone. First of all, he signed up for like my lead bait, my content bait on my marketing site. I followed up. I looked up on LinkedIn. I followed him on Twitter, reached out to him, got on the phone with him. We hit it off, followed up another hour phone conversation a week later. And then I was like, where are you? In Los Angeles, cool. I'm going to fly down to Los Angeles next week and we are going to meet for three days. And that's what we did. And then, you know, so he saw not only is this legit, but this guy's not messing around. This guy wants me and is serious and is going to leave his wife and two kids and come down to LA and sit with me in some like hacker bachelor pad and work for three days. So I just showed, I just showed seriousness. And I think, you know, I, I'm sure you've heard stories like this too, but it's just kind of a given in the developer community, at least just as much as you hear recruiters coming and trying to knock down your door all the time. There's just as many non-technical people like yourself 
who have not gone through the effort that you have, who want to start the next Facebook and want to do it for like 0.05% equity. And I can just tell you the obvious distinction and the way that you talk about it, the way that you talk about how you approached it from those sorts of horror stories that you hear. And I mean, we, we, we laugh it off. You've, you've got a, enough developers who kind of have worked up a tolerance for it, but you know, there are just as many developers out there who don't know enough. You know, the whole reason that they're interested in working with somebody who is a, a business person is because they don't know how to evaluate it. So, you know, I think it'll be interesting when we get Ben on here and ask his perspective on it, how he ended up approaching the situation and what he thought of what you had to say. But, you know, at, at least as an outsider looking in, in hindsight, it sounds like the right way to go. You know, you sounded like somebody who came in uh, intelligent, knowledgeable about whatever it was that they were doing and not, you know, like some of these these horror stories that we've heard of. Yeah. And one man's horror story is another man getting rich off of, you know, Facebook stock. <laughs> right. <laughs> so right. It, there's no like one way to do it. It's just you got to do what makes sense for you. And again, there's an element of luck. If Ben had not had experience in his previous businesses that he had, he would not have been as open to saying, you know what? I want to be involved in the company, but I don't want to run the business. I don't want to be CEO. I want to run product. If he hadn't had that prior experience, he may not have been nearly as open to someone like me approaching him and saying, I'm going to be the boss, but I want you to join. He, he may have said, no, I want to be the boss given, you know, what he had done in his uh, career previously. So there's, there's always an element of luck, but from the business guy, the non-technical person, I mean, it was very clear to Ben that I, I'm a hungry, motivated animal. And that's probably what you want in a business guy if you're going to be the product and tech guy. So I think that gave him a lot of comfort and confidence. Like this guy is not going to just say he's going to go after sales and do the marketing. Like this guy is going to, this guy is going to do it. So I understand that you guys are in different time zones. You're in Portland. Ben's in New York. Oh, yes. So what challenges do you have there working remotely? We have some challenges. It's hard to even put in words. The, the biggest challenge is, you know, what happens when you sit next to someone, especially at this early stage, there's so many ideas, there's so many possible ways to go and features to add and different pricing. And so we, we miss out on that constant dialogue that goes back and forth and, and sometimes gets somewhere interesting. So that's kind of what we miss out on. This is almost hard to describe. I don't know if that made any sense what I said, but that's what I'm trying to put my finger on. The other challenges are really not that bad. For communication, we text constantly. We're on Slack all the time. It kind of works out because Ben doesn't sleep. So when I'm doing work at 10 o'clock at night, he's still awake for some reason at <laughs> 1 o'clock in the morning. Like when I'm going to bed. And yeah, I'm that's Ben. That's Ben. It's, it's like midnight in Portland. And I'm like, yo, I'm toast. I got to go to bed. He's like, sure, no problem. Talk to you in the morning. <laughs> and then on the other end, I have kids. For me to get to the desk anytime before like 8.30 is really difficult. So by that time, it's 11.30. Ben is obviously eating Chipotle, which is the only thing he eats. And so the day kind of gets lined up. It's not that bad. But the biggest challenge and the one we try to overcome by seeing each other regularly is that weird mind meld thing that happens when you just talk about something for hours and you, you kind of get to these little epiphanies. Seeing right. each other regularly as in you in find – okay. Yeah, like we're going to see each other at MicroConf. Then after that, Ben's going to come back to Portland so we can do that mind meld thing for a few days. And then, you know, I have family in New York, so I'm going to go to New York in May. And then we're going to, I think we have another e-commerce conference in June. So we always kind of want to make sure we're going to see each other once every, you know, three, four weeks. 
Yeah. Because okay. there's, there's a lot of value to that. There's a lot of stress at this stage of the company. And when you get together with someone and, and eat, you know, burritos and have beers, when it gets tense, you can make jokes and kid around and like make fun of the person. But you need to like be in person first and like establish that relationship before you can make little jokes on Slack, like making fun of the person, which is like important for when things get tense. So it's, it's, it's important all the way around. So what, what happens in these, in these meetings? Is it mostly a social meeting or is there any planning involved? No, there's, there's a lot of planning. Um, so we meet every morning at 9 a.m. my time and we just catch up on what's going on, what's going on today, what do we need to talk about, what are you working on, what am I working on? So that's the constant contact. And in person, we try to plan ahead of time and we say, what are the things that it would be really helpful to be in person? Like example, next week we're meeting in microconf. We have been having these ongoing debates about pricing and pricing model and what's going on out there in the market and the competition, what type of customers we want, what should our minimum price be, all this stuff. And we've kind of been pushing it off and saying, when we're in person and we get to sit down for four hours, we'll get to a much better, healthier decision then than if we just kind of you know, go back and forth on Slack and then talk on Skype for 20 minutes and then talk later on that night. And so it's like we save up these really important things that we think are, will be better when we're in person for when those meetings happen. And then we go out for beers. It sounds like you ended up spending time in person beforehand too. Is that right? Yes. yes that was that was critical. Like it's a marriage. Like I, I chopped off my left arm in, in terms of equity to get Ben on board because it, it made sense. But there's no way we could have done that without spending decent amount of time in person. So I went down to LA. We spent a few days together. And then as Ben became more serious about the opportunity, I think he wanted to show the same level of seriousness. So he came up to Portland for a few days after that. And then it's actually an interesting thing. Charlie, the other co-founder, you know, when you get two developers in the same like bubble bath, there's like, they don't know what to do with each other. Right. They're like, well, this guy, no matter what happens, you look at someone else's code, they're going to be like, well, why would you do it this way? Well, why would you do that? Well, that doesn't make any sense. So the natural tension that happened between them was something that was, again, my responsibility to make sure went smoothly. Right when we were in Portland, things got a little bit tense. So I said, Ben, you know what you need to do? You need to leave Portland and you need to go down to San Francisco and spend the weekend with Charlie. So then he got to know Charlie in person and all that tension melted away. They realized, hey, you're also a talented, cool person and we're going to be excited to work together and outnumber the idiot business guy, Jordan. So now they're excited to work together. <laughs> so so those these in-person meetings were absolutely crucial. Right. That makes sense. It's funny though, like looking back on Venkat and I actually, uh, we – started working together before we'd ever met in person. I think we met in person at University of Maryland, where we both went to school maybe once and had no idea who the other person was. And, you know, our mutual friend. <laughs> it might have been for like two minutes. Right, yeah. exactly. I'm like, oh, hey, cool. Yeah, nice to meet you, you know. But <laughs> it's funny that I think, how long did it take for us to actually finally meet in person, Ben Cat? Maybe like six months or something like that. So it's weird. It, to took, it took a while. And I mean, for us, it was, uh, we started as wor by working on a, a client project. And that's what really cemented in that we worked really well together. Yeah, it's I weird. See. I mean, we, we kind of had to uh, do like trial by fire, basically, where we both had, like I had work that was incoming and we decided to work together on it. So it's it's interesting to hear kind of, 
uh, a different perspective on working remotely since my only perspective at this point is like either I met somebody in person and then worked with them in person full time, 40 hours a week or, you know, this relationship that Venkat and I have had. So, yeah, mm-hmm. I think that that makes sense. And the truth is, if you dig into the details, what happened with Ben is the same thing. We did not commit to each other. We said, you know what, let's just work together for a month. Let's just go back and forth and see how we like it. Yep. And, and yeah. So same kind of thing is essentially like a client project, you know, okay, let's work together for three weeks on this project and see how we do, see how we like working with each other. And yeah, and we, we did the same thing. So it's a combination of meeting in person and also working together because, you know, people are different when they work. Right. Uh, and that, that's how you can really discover like, all right, do we like each other? <laughs> Does this make sense? Do we actually have complementary skills? Are we going to step on each other's toes? Are, are you a micromanager? You can only find that out by actually going through it. Right. And I, I actually would say too, uh, the person that introduced Venkat and I was my first company's co-founder with me. And that relationship did not work out as uh, business partners. Like it's just, we're great friends. He's still one of my best friends, but you know, we recognized early on that we couldn't work together. It just wasn't going to end up working out. Um, yeah, that's and, fine. Yeah, and it, it is because, you know, then we ended up in a situation where he introduced Venkat and I, and now Venkat and I work perfectly together. And we could we could see from that standpoint of trying it and being okay with it not working what the other person needed. So, you know, he knew when he recommended Venkat to me that, like, this was actually going to be a relationship that would turn out well. I, I think right. people you know, need to go into that with the understanding that this isn't like a marriage that they need to commit to right now. And if they don't get married now, they can never be married for the rest of their lives. You know, I think it is that that working together time period is really like some kind of nice open dating. And it's okay if it doesn't turn out okay, you can still remain friends. Yeah. And and it's better to find that out up front than get married work together for six months and, and hate each other out of it. That's not going to make for a successful business and it's going to make for a lost friend. The other piece of it is, you know, people have dealt with this before. That vesting exists for a reason. Even if you decide to get married, you still don't actually have to be married forever. There, there is divorce in the business world and, and vesting helps that. So, you know, Ben and I right now, we're married, but if it doesn't work out, like it's not the end of the world for the company. Right. You know, people get what they deserve, but all the value that I deserve as the original founder is in the future. Just because I had the idea and built it initially, that doesn't mean that it only means a certain amount and that's how much should be vested up front. But the truth is all the value is going to be created over the next few years. So even you know, this was something difficult for me to deal with when it was just me and I, I was, you know, the, the main man and the only person in town. Even, even Charlie was like on the periphery that he had a piece of it, but it wasn't like control and whatever else. I had to deal with the fact that when we signed papers, I didn't actually own the company. I owned a fraction and, but the ownership was contingent upon me working on this for the next four years. So even if things go wrong, it's not a disaster. The person walks away with what they deserve and not anymore. Right. I think that's a perfect point. So I want to circle back and go back to the moment when, you know, you decided that you wanted to start looking for developers on this thing. Now it's become kind of a common theme to hear, oh, you know, non-technical people should learn how to code. Where do you come down on that? Should non-technical founders learn how to code? My opinion is no. No, there is 
no chance that I will be anywhere near as good as a lot of the people out there at building technology. You know, I'm 35. For me to say I'm going to commit the next two years of my life to get up to speed on building Ruby or PHP or something, I just think that that doesn't make any sense. There are specializations in the business world for a reason because it's hard to get good at things. So if you're good at one thing, then just get better at that. Don't try to learn everything. That's my opinion. And and the truth is, from my standpoint, <laughs> right, self-serving, but it makes sense. I think the value in business is in selling, in in convincing people and marketing, positioning and pricing and attracting and converting. And, all, and that that's where I see the value in business. And not that the technology is a commodity. It's just that I think business doesn't survive without the sales side and the marketing side. So that's what that's what I like. So for me to say I should learn Ruby just so I can build my own one application for this particular company in my career is like, that ah, makes no sense. Right. I, I think that makes perfect sense. And I don't know, maybe we're not the, maybe we're more business people now than we are technologists, but I think we would agree in the sense that unless you are a technology company, unless you're Heroku or, you know, Digital Ocean or, uh, division of Amazon web services or something like that, unless that is your primary directive is to make technology and sell technology. I just, I don't see why technology needs to be the primary focus. That's not the core of your business. Of course it enables sales. You couldn't be able to sell something without having built it. But you know, at the same time, why end up focusing all of your efforts and energy on that and having every single founder devoted to it. It makes yeah, no sense. There's too much work to do. There, there really is. There's too much work to do on the product side and there's too much work to do on the marketing side. To think you're going to do both is very, very difficult. And I don't like making anything more difficult than it, than it needs to be. It's, it's already hard enough. So with your different backgrounds, how do you stay on the same page with what's going to get built? So what's going to get built in the product side? In the product, yeah. Okay, so that I think is a healthy tension. So when I talk to people and they want A-B testing now, then I go over to the product side and I go to Ben and I go to Charlie. I say, guys, we need A-B testing. And they come back to me and say, look, buddy, A-B testing sounds awesome, but we need to get this straight and that straight first because that will allow us to do A-B testing the right way instead of just adding it on right now. And I say, damn it. Okay, and I go back to the customer. So it, there's the product development, in my opinion, should be formed – and informed by what real people actually want, not just what we think is cool. Sure, there's room for innovation and for doing things that other people aren't doing and all that, but I like for the majority of it to come out of real customers. They say, oh, this is cool what you've built. Can you do this also? And then if that falls within our scope of what we want to deal with right now and we keep hearing that over and over, I want that to inform the product development. And at the same time, the product guys should come back to the business side and say, look, that's nice, but this is the right way to do it. So you have to let us do it this way. And, you know, somewhere in that argument, you try to get to the right point. So how do you, how do you deal with that tension then of the technology and the business requirements? Oh, I want the business side to win out a little bit more often than lose so that we're building and we're launching and we are adding things on that are based on real people. And what I see as my responsibility is not asking the technology side to waste their time 
just because I think something would be cool if we added it. I have to come to the plate with justification. I say, guys, we have our biggest customer has 13 international sites. We currently do not, we're not able to support foreign currency. If you build foreign currency into our capability, we will add a thousand dollars in monthly recurring revenue next month. Can you get it done? So that's what I see as my res- responsibility to come to them with. There is something that's pressing and it's valuable for the company. Can you do it? Can you stop what you're doing and spend time on it? And then at the same time, I think you need to be a little humble. And when the technology staff comes back and says, Jordan, that is going to be an absolute mess. It would be better if we did something else first. Uh, then I have to kind of respect their final say on that type of thing. So when you're coming back to Ben, then you have you're quantifying the benefit of what he's about to build. Right. And so how does he then quantify the argument that he has on his side of things? Obviously he can't come back and say, you know, well, I, 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 you know, this isn't going to give us a thousand dollars a month in recurring revenue. What, what is it that he's, he's saying to make sure that you understand the justification behind it? He's, you know, taking what he knows and dumbing it down to a fifth grade level and and ex- explaining to me exactly why things work a certain way. And that's what I see as his responsibility and Charlie's responsibility to at least explain to me so in a way so that I understand the logic and reasoning behind their decision. So it's not just we are in charge of the technology and we say so and that's why. That That's not enough. The same way it's not enough for me to say I want this new feature because it'll help. It's not enough for them to say we don't want to do an integration with Shopify because we don't feel like it. They have to come back and say, look, right now our API is set up a certain way. If we want to integrate with Shopify, what it will mean is adjusting our API and that means doing this type of hairy stuff and that will take time. And so it's, it's both sides responsibility to come back you know, with the necessary justifications. And then you kind of have to, I think both sides have to be humble and say, sometimes I'm going to be wrong and I'm going to do what the other person says. Maybe I'm not 100% convinced, but they sound like they are convinced and they know what they're talking about. Um, so that's, you know, that's just trust that's kind of built up over time. Uh, and the best thing you can do for winning arguments is be right in your, in your guesses. So if I say, guys, I have someone with this new platform. If you work over the weekend, we will add this customer on for 250 bucks a month. And then if you actually deliver on that and the next week they sign up for 250 bucks a month, the next time you ask the technology side to do something for you, they're much more likely to do it. Right. So it sounds like on an ongoing basis, at least, the justification that they provide is very logical, very well thought out, very well explained. Has it always been the case that that is the way that the relationship has worked? Did it start out that way or has it been a case where trust has just been built over time and the justification doesn't need to be as deep as maybe it once was? Yes, to to both of those questions. So the funny thing that's happened since Ben joined is now I get to see Charlie in all his glory. So now when he explains things on Slack, he's not dumbing it down for me and he's talking at Ben's level. And I'm like, oh, shit. <laughs> I don't know what, what you guys are talking about. So I almost get to see like, oh, this is the stuff that Charlie has been holding in and not even – he doesn't even have someone there on the other side to talk through. 
And so I've really seen like a, like a blossoming between Ben and Charlie on the technology side. Things have gotten much more sophisticated and interesting just because I'm no longer like the bottleneck that has to be talked down to. But the second part of what you said is, is very true. In the beginning, I would say, Charlie, why in the world would we do it this way? And he'd have to really take his time and say, look, if the database picks things up this way and then it's this way and this other thing, what you're not considering is this other thing and how that interacts with this. And now that the trust has been established, I trust him. He says, look, that's going to be a mess because of this. And I say, you're, you get the final decision on that. You let me know how, how to handle it. And that's, that, that takes time. Right. Right. It does for sure. I mean, just looking at it from the opposite side of the table, uh, with us and clients that we've worked with, it's certainly a challenge at first to explain that whatever it is that we're saying, we're not saying out of self-interest, right? It is entirely because we think that this thing is more challenging than you'd anticipated. Or, you know, we think that like realistically, the amount of effort involved in this would have been better served by doing some other thing. And often we have to play, you know, devil's advocate on the business side and say, you know, look, I know that you want to end up uh, like it'd be great to have a technical solution for giving like gift cards or something like that out. But given where we're at right now, it would involve two weeks of development time to do. And you could honestly go and just give people gift cards. And, you know, I, I have to look at it from the business perspective just as much as I have to look at it from the technical perspective. And sure, I'd love to charge you two weeks worth of stuff, but not if it ends up meaning that, you know, you're never going to make that money back or you have to do, you know, so much volume over the next year to ever have that end up having the impact that you expect that you would have from it. Right. I think everybody wants to like glean on to the interesting new engineering way of solving something, but it's just kind of funny that I've come full circle and now I'm like arguing against those things. <laughs> yeah. I think you have to think long-term and you have to be reasonable and you know, that that's kind of where you end up. It's it, you, you become convinced that your way is not always right and you become more open to the other, the other, other side. And at the same time, I also think, you know, words matter. You can be convincing you can be a lawyer. You know, I, that's what I tell my daughter who's three years old. I say, honey, the way to get what you want in life is to use words. If you get good enough at using words, you will get whatever you want in life. And it's true. So I do certain things that help my cause. So I, you know, when, whenever I get a product feature request and I, it's something that I want done and I keep hearing it from customers, when I reply, I, I, I'll BCC the tech team. And so th they'll see my response to the customer. Oh, I'm very sorry, Mary. We're not quite ready for A-B testing, but I'll talk to the team and we'll get on that. You know, and I'll, I'll BCC, you know, three or four times within a week and they'll kind of get the hint that it's not coming from my, from my, uh, from my mind, that it's coming from the market. So, you know, there's a lot of things you can do to be convincing. Just like when you're dealing with a client, you also may not want to spend two weeks on that type of a feature. You might just want to tell them, guys, it would really be a better idea if you did it another way. Um, so I never underestimate what carefully worded email can do. And from a developer perspective, it's always helpful to have the business objectives and, and the purpose of the feature in mind because in some cases we can suggest, you know, a cheaper alternative that is quicker to build, for example. Right. That actually addresses the business need and not just, mm -hmm. you know, someone telling you, I want to be able to do X. Like, actually, why do you want to do X? Right. Exactly. Yep. Well, this has been fantastic. We really appreciate you coming on. Uh, tell us, where can we keep up with you online? 
Uh, so the, the company is Cardhook. That's cardhook.com. But if you're not you know, running an e-commerce store, that would be less interesting for you. Uh, so I'm on Twitter. It's just at Jordan Gall, J-O-R-D-A-N-G-A-L. Yeah, I think that's that's probably the, the best place. Okay, great. Thanks so much. Awesome. Thank you very much, guys. I'm looking forward to hearing the, the lies and stories that Ben tells on the other side so I can correct them. <laughs> yeah, he did mention he was going to contradict everything you said. So, Of course. <laughs> cool. Thanks very much for having me on, guys. Yeah, right, thanks so thanks. much. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Talking Code Podcast. If you haven't yet, make sure to sign up for our mailing list at TalkingCode.com. If you liked this episode, please be sure to open up iTunes and leave us a review. And if you're dying for us to talk about something in particular, go to TalkingCode.com slash ask and let us know. We read and respond to every listener question. So even if you just want a little advice, we're here to help.